Chapter Sixteen, Part Two of Faces and Places. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Ruth Golding. Faces and Places by Henry W. Lucy. Chapter Sixteen, Part Two. Some Preachers I Have Known. Dean Stanley. On St. Andrew's Day, eighteen seventy five, I was present at two memorable services in Westminster Abbey. For many years during Dean Stanley's reign, this particular day had been set apart for the holding of special services on behalf of foreign missions. What made this occasion memorable in the annals of the Church was the fact that the evening lecture was delivered by Dr. Moffat, a nonconformist minister, who, in the year after the Battle of Waterloo, began his career as a missionary to South Africa and finally closed his foreign labours in the year when Sedan was fought. As being the first time a nonconformist minister had officiated in Westminster Abbey, the event created wide interest, and lost none of its importance by the remarkable sermon preached in the afternoon by Dean Stanley. The Dean took for his text two verses, one from the Old Testament, the other from the New. The first was from the forty-fifth psalm, and ran thus. Instead of thy fathers shall be thy children, whom thou mayest make princes in all the earth. The second was the sixteenth verse of the tenth chapter of the Gospel of St. John. And other sheep I have, which are not of this fold. Them also I must bring, and they shall hear my voice and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. Thus the verse runs in the ordinary translation, but the dean preferred the word flock in place of fold, and used it throughout his discourse. Referring to an address recently delivered by Mr. W. E. Forster on Our Colonies, the dean observed that the right honourable gentleman had set himself the task of considering the question what were to be the future relations of the mother country to the colonies? The dean proposed to follow the same course, with this difference, that the empire of which he had to speak was a spiritual empire, and the question he would consider was what ought to be the policy of the Church of England towards fellow Christians separated from it on matters of form. There were, he said, three courses open to the Church. There was the policy of abstention and isolation. There was the policy of extermination or absorption. And there was a middle course, avoiding abstention and not aiming at absorption, which consisted of holding friendly and constant intercourse with Christians of other churches earnestly and lovingly endeavouring to create as many points of contact as were compatible with holding fast the truth. The errors of all religions run into each other, just as their truths do. There was, no doubt, some exaggeration in the statement of the Roman Catholic authority, who declared that there is but one bad religion, and that is the religion of the man who professes what he does not believe. But there was no reason why, because the Church of England had done in times past, and was still doing grand work, there should be no place for the nonconformists. Church people rejoiced, 
and nonconformists might rejoice that the prayers of the Church of England were enshrined in a liturgy radiant with the traditions of a glorious past. But that was no reason why there should be no room where good work was being done for men who preferred the chances of extemporaneous prayer, a custom of apostolic origin, and perhaps, very daintily this was put, fittest for the exigencies of special occasions. If some of the extremer nonconformists, desirous of wrapping themselves in the mantle once worn by churchmen, and possessed by a love for uniformity so exaggerated that they would tear down ancient institutions and reduce all churches to the same level, there was no reason why churchmen should return evil for evil and repay contumely with scorn. There was a nobler mission for Christians than that of seeking to exterminate each other, a higher object than that of endeavouring to sow the seeds of vulgar prejudice either against new discoveries or ancient institutions. Dean Stanley preached his sermon within the chancel, and it formed part of the customary afternoon service of the Church of England. Dr. Moffat delivered his lecture in the nave, its simple preface being the singing of the missionary hymn From Greenland's Icy Mountains. The pioneer of missionary labour in South Africa was at this time close upon his eightieth year, but he seemed to have thriven upon hard work, and showed no signs of physical weakness. His full, rich voice, musical with a northern accent, which long residence in South Africa had not robbed of a note, filled every corner of the long aisle, and no section of the vast congregation was disappointed by reason of not hearing. Wearing a plain Geneva robe, with the purple hood of his academic degree, he stood at the lectern, situated not many paces from the grave where his friend and son-in-law, Dr. Livingstone, lies. Dean Stanley was one of many clergymen present, and occupied a seat just in front of the lectern. Dr. Moffat began by protesting that he was very nervous, because, having been accustomed for fifty years or more to speak and teach and preach in a language altogether different from European, he had contracted a habit of thinking in that language, and sometimes found it momentarily difficult to find the exact expression of his thoughts in English. If I might, he said, with a touch of dry humour that frequently lighted up his discourse, speak to you in the Betuana tongue, I could get along with ease. However, I will do what I can. The lecture resolved itself into a quiet, homely, and exceedingly interesting chat, chiefly about the Betuanas, with whom Dr. Moffat longest laboured. When he arrived in the country, early in the present century, he found the people sunk in the densest ignorance. Unlike most heathen tribes, they had no idea of a god, no notion of a hereafter. There was not an idol to be found in all their province, and one the lecturer's daughter showed to an intelligent leader of the people excited his liveliest astonishment. He was, indeed, so hopelessly removed from a state of civilization 
that he ridiculed the notion of any one worshipping a thing made with his own hands. Dr. Moffat seems to have been, on the whole, kindly received by the natives, though they could not make out what he wanted there. A special stumbling-block to them was how it came to pass that when, as sometimes happened, he and Mrs. Moffat were disrespectfully treated, they did not retaliate. This was satisfactorily explained to the popular mind by the assertion of a distinguished member of the community that the foreigners had run away from their country, and were content to bear any treatment rather than return to their own people, who would infallibly kill them. The great difficulty met by Dr. and Mrs. Moffat on the threshold of their mission was their ignorance of the native language. There were no interpreters, and there was nothing for it but to grub along, patiently picking up words as they went. The Betuanas were willing to teach them as far as they could, occasionally relieving the monotony of the lesson by a little joke at the pupil's expense. Once, Dr. Moffat told his hearers, a sentence was written down on a piece of paper, and he was instructed to take it to an aged lady, who was to give him something he was in need of. He found the old lady, who was scarcely handsome and was decidedly wrinkled, and upon presenting the paper she blushed very much. It turned out that the missionary had been the unconscious bearer of a message asking the old lady to kiss him, which, Dr. Moffat added, with a seriousness that appeared to indicate a sense of the awkwardness of the position still present in his mind, I did not want to do at all. But he mastered the language at last, and then his moral mastery over the strange people amongst whom he had been thrown commenced. He found a firm ally in the Queen, who, first attracted by the flavour of the pills and other delicacies he was accustomed to administer to her in his capacity of physician, became his constant and powerful friend. Under her auspices Christianity flourished, and in Betuana at the present time, where once a printed book was regarded as the white man's charm, thousands now are able to read and treasure the Bible, as formerly they treasured the marks which testified to the number of enemies they had slain in battle. Peace reigns where once blood ran. And over a vast tract of country, Civilization is closely following in the footsteps of the missionary. Dr. Moffat concluded a simple address, followed with intense interest by the congregation, by an earnest plea for help for foreign missions. If every child of God in Europe and America, he said, would give something to this mission, the dark cloud which lies over this neglected and mysterious continent would soon be lighted, and before many years are past, we might behold the blessed sight of all Africa stretching forth her hands to God. Mr. Spurgeon In a lane leading from the station at Adelston is a massive oak, which, if the gossips of the neighbourhood be trustworthy, has seen some notable sights. It is said that under its far-reaching branches 
Wycliffe has preached, and Queen Elizabeth dined. Here, one summer evening, I first heard Mr. Spurgeon preach. The occasion was in connection with the building of a new Baptist chapel, and when I arrived the foundation stone was being utilised as a receptacle for offerings, over which Mr. Spurgeon, sitting on the wall, and shaded from the sun by an umbrella reverently held over his head by a disciple, jovially presided. After tea a pulpit was extemporised, upon the model of the one at the tabernacle, by covering an empty provision box with red bays, and fastening before it a wooden railing, also with its decent covering of bays. A pair of steps, constructed with a considerable amount of trouble, were placed in position before the rostrum. But when, a few minutes after seven o'clock, the preacher appeared, he scorned their assistance, and scrambled onto the box from the level of the field grasping the rail as soon as he was in a position to face the congregation, as if he recognised in it a familiar friend, whose presence made him feel at home under the novel circumstances that surrounded him. There might, when Mr. Spurgeon stood up, have been some doubt whether his voice could be heard throughout the vast throng gathered in front of the tree, but the first tones of the speaker's voice dispelled uncertainty and the congregation settled quietly down, whilst Mr. Spurgeon, with uplifted hands, besought the Spirit of God to be with them, even as in their accustomed places of worship. A hymn was sung, a portion of the fifty-fifth chapter of Isaiah read, another prayer offered up, and the preacher commenced his sermon. He took for his text a portion of the thirty-sixth verse of the ninth chapter of Matthew. He was moved with compassion. At the outset he sketched, with rapid eloquence, the history of Jesus Christ. The first declaration that might have startled one not accustomed to the preacher's style of oratory was his expression of a preference for people who absolutely hated religion, over those who simply regarded it with indifference. These former were people who showed they did think, and, like Saul of Tarsus, there was hope of their conversion. It is, he said, a great time when the Lord goes into the devil's army, and, looking around him, sees some lieutenant, and says to him, Come along, you have served the black master long enough, I have need of you now. It is astonishing how quietly he comes along, and what a valiant fight he fights on the side of his new master. Mr. Spurgeon had a protest to make against the practice of refusing to help the poor, except through the machinery of the poor law. Referring to Christ's having compassionated the hungry crowd and fed them, he said, If Jesus Christ were alive now, and presumed to feed a crowd of people, he would be had up by some society or other, and prosecuted for encouraging mendicancy. If he were alive in these days, he would, I much fear, have occasion to say, I was hungry, and ye fed me not. Thirsty, and ye gave me no drink. Destitute, and you told me to go on the parish. He thought tracts were very good things in their way, 
but should not be relied upon solely as a means of bringing poor people to the Lord. I believe a loaf of bread often contains the very essence of theology, and the Church of God ought to look to it that there are at her gates no poor unfed, no sick untended. He was rather hard on the clergy of all denominations, regretting to say that, as fish always stunk first at the head, so a church, when it goes wrong, goes bad first among its ministers. He concluded by an eloquent appeal to his hearers to lose no time in seeking salvation, calling heaven and earth and this old tree under which the gospel was preached five hundred years ago to bear witness that I have preached to you the word of God in which alone salvation is to be found. The sermon occupied exactly an hour in the delivery, and was listened to throughout with profound attention. When it was over, Mr. Spurgeon held a sort of levy from the pulpit, the people pressing round to shake his hand, and it was nearly nine o'clock before the last of the congregation had passed away, leaving Wycliffe's tree to its accustomed solitude. The next time I heard Mr. Spurgeon preach was in his famous church. The tabernacle will hold six thousand people when full, and on this night it was thronged from door to door, and from floor to ceiling, with a congregation gathered together to watch, whilst the old year died and the new was born. At eleven o'clock, when Mr. Spurgeon, gownless and guiltless of white necktie or other clerical insignia, unceremoniously walked on to the platform which serves him for pulpit, there was not a foot of vacant space in the vast area looked down upon from the galleries, for even the aisles were thronged. The capacious galleries that rise tier over tier to the roof were crowded in like manner, and the preacher stood, faced and surrounded by a congregation, the sight of which might well move to the utterance of words that burn a man who had within him a fount of thoughts that breathe. There was no other prelude to the service than the simply spoken invitation, Let us pray, and the six thousand, declaring themselves creatures of time, bent the knee with one accord to ask the Lord of Eternity to bless them in the coming year. After this a hymn was sung, Mr. Spurgeon reading out verse by verse, with occasional commentary, and not unfrequent directions to the congregation as to the manner of their singing. Dear friends, the devil sometimes makes you lag half a note behind the leader. Just try if you can't prevail over him tonight, and keep up in proper time. There is no organ, not even a tuning fork, in use at the tabernacle but the difficulties, apparently insuperable under these circumstances, of leading so vast a congregation in the singing of unpractised tunes, is almost overcome by the skilful generalship of the gentleman who steps forward to the rails beside the preacher's table, pitches the note, and leads the singing. The hymn brought to a conclusion. Mr. Spurgeon read and commented upon a passage of scripture from the twenty-fifth of Matthew. Then another hymn. 
"'Sing this verse very softly and solemnly,' says the pastor. And the congregation, in hushed tones, that seemed to thrill all through the aisles and up through the crowded galleries, sing, Who of us death's awful road in the coming year shall tread? With thy rod and staff, O God, comfort thou his dying bed. After another prayer from the pastor, and one from one of the deacons who accompanied him on the platform, and sat behind in the crimson velvet armchairs, a third hymn was sung, and Mr. Spurgeon began his short address. He took for text the forty-second verse of the twelfth chapter of Exodus. It is a night to be much observed unto the Lord for bringing them out from the land of Egypt. This is that night of the Lord to be observed of all the children of Israel in their generations. The night referred to in the text was that of the Passover, a night of salvation, decision, emigration, and exultation, said the preacher, and I pray God that this night, the last of a memorable year, may be the same for you, my friends. Oh, for a grand emigration among you like that of the departure of the people of Israel, an emptying out of old Egypt a robbing of Pharaoh of his slaves, and the devil of his dupes. It was understood that Mr. Spurgeon was labouring under severe indisposition, and probably this fact gave to his brief address a tone comparatively quiet and unimpassioned. Only once did he rise to the fervent height of oratory to which his congregation are accustomed, and that at the close when, with uplifted hands and louder voice, he apostrophized the parting year. Thou art almost gone, and if thou goest now, the tidings to the throne of God will be that such and such a soul is yet unsaved. Oh, stay yet a while here, that thou mayest carry with thee glad tidings that the soul is saved. Thy life is measured now by seconds, but all things are possible with God, and there is still time for the salvation of many souls. At five minutes to twelve the preacher paused, and bade his hearers get away to the throne of grace, and in silent prayer beseech the Almighty to bless you, with a rich and special blessing in the new year he is sending you. The congregation bent forward, and a great silence was upon it, broken only by half-stifled coughing here and there, and once by the wailing of an infant in the gallery. The minutes passed slowly and solemnly, as the old year's face grew sharp and thin, under the ticking of the clock over the kneeling preacher and his deacons. The minutes dwindled down to seconds, and then, Alack, our friend is gone! Close up his eyes, tie up his chin, step from the corpse, and let him in that standeth at the door. Now, as we have passed into the new year, said Mr. Spurgeon, 
advancing to the rails as the last stroke of midnight died away. I do not think we can do better than join in singing Praise God from whom all blessings flow. No need now of instructions how to sing. The congregation were almost before the leader in raising the familiar strain, with which six thousand voices filled the spacious tabernacle. Then came the benediction, and a cheery, I wish you all a happy new year, my friends, from Mr. Spurgeon. A great shout of the same to you, arose in response from basement and galleries, and the congregation passed out into a morning so soft and light and mild that it seemed as if the seasons were out of joint, and that the new year had been born in the springtime. In the Ragged Church the Ragged Church is one of the numerous by-paths through which the managers of the Field Lane Institution strive to approach and benefit the poor of London. It is situate in Little Saffron Hill, Farringdon Road, the service being held in a barn-like room, which on weekdays serves for school and is capable of accommodating a thousand children. No money has been expended in architectural embellishment and no question of a controversial character is likely to arise in connection with accessories in the shape of altar, surplice, or candles. The ragged church avoids these stumbling blocks by the simple expedient of doing without candles, surplices, or altar. It does not even boast a pulpit, but draws the line so as to take in a harmonium, indispensable for leading the tunes. At one end of the room is a platform, on which the harmonium stands, and whereon the service is conducted. It is the congregation rather than the preacher that I remember best in connection with the ragged church. Half-past eleven is the hour for the commencement of service, and was fixed upon chiefly to suit the convenience of a portion of the congregation, who, having slept overnight in the casual wards, are considerately detained in them till eleven o'clock, by which time society is supposed to be comfortably seated in its own churches, and is thus saved the shock of suddenly coming upon rags and tatters going to church or elsewhither. Rags and tatters, it being well understood, not always showing themselves proof against the temptation of improving the occasion by begging. At a quarter to eleven there filed into the church three score little girls, all dressed in wincy dresses, with brown furry jackets and little brown hats, a monotony of colour that served to bring into fuller contrast the red and black wool scarf each wore tightly tied round her neck. They all looked bright, clean, and happy, and one noted a considerable proportion of pretty-faced and delicately limbed children. How they were born, or with what parentage, is in many cases a question to which the records of the institution supply no answer. They were simply found on a doorstep, or arrested when wandering about the street, crying for the mother or the father who had cast them off. This class of schoolgirl is generally distinguished by the fineness of her Christian name. 
Blanche and Lily and Constance being among the waifs and strays who have found a refuge with the kindly matron of the Field Lane Institution. There are others whose history is written plainly enough in the records of the police courts. There is one, a prematurely aged little woman in her eleventh year, who, previous to being sent here, passed of her own free will night after night in the streets, living through the day on her wits, which are very sharp. Another, about the same age, when taken into custody on something more than suspicion of picking pockets, was found the possessor of no fewer than seven purses. A third, who is understood to be now in her ninth year, earned a handsome livelihood in the haymarket by frequenting the public houses, and with dramatic gestures singing the more popular concert-hall songs. One of the most determined and headstrong young ladies of the establishment was not privileged to be present at the morning service, being in fact in bed, where she was detained with the hope that amid the silence and solitude of the empty chamber she might be brought to see in its true light the heinousness of the offence of wilfully depositing her boots in a pail of water. Conviction for offences against the law is by no means a general characteristic of the girls. For the most part, destitution has been the simple ground on which they have obtained admission to the institution. The girls, being seated on the front benches to the right of the harmonium, the tramp of many feet was heard, and there entered by the opposite side of the church some sixty boys in corduroys, short jackets, and clean collars. They took up a position on the left of the harmonium, and with one consent gravely folded their arms. Their private history is, in its general features, much the same as that of the girls. All are sent hither by order of the police court magistrate, but many have not committed any crime, save the unpardonable one, of being absolutely and hopelessly homeless. It is not difficult, stating the broad rule, to pick out from the boys those who have been convicted of crime. As compared with the rest, they are generally brighter-looking, and gifted with a stronger physique. The distinction was strongly marked by the conjunction of two boys who sat together on the front form. One, who had stolen nothing less than a coal-scuttle, observed projecting from an ironmonger's shop in Drury Lane was a sturdy, ruddy-cheeked little man, who folded his arms in a composed manner, and listened with an inquiring interest to the words poured forth over his head from the platform. The boy next to him, a pale-faced, inert lad, who stared straight before him with lacklustre eyes, had the saddest of all boys' histories. He was born in a casual ward, his father died in a casual ward, and his mother nightly haunts the streets of London in pursuance of an elaborately devised plan by which she is able so to time her visits to the various casual wards as never to be turned away from any on the ground that she had slept there too recently. The foreground of the ragged church was bright enough, for whilst there is youth there is hope 
and in the present case there is also the knowledge that these children are under guardianship at once kind and wise. Presently the backbenches began to fill with a congregation such as no other church in London might show. Crushed-looking women in limp bonnets, scanty shawls, and much-patched dresses crept quietly in. With them, though not in their company, came men of all ages, and of a general level of ragged destitution. A gaunt, haggard, hungry and hopeless congregation, as ever went to church on a Sunday morning. Some had passed the night in the refuge attached to the institution. Many had come straight from the casual wards. Others had spent the long hours since sundown in the streets. And one, a hale old man who diffused around him an air of respectability and comfort, was a lodger at Clerkenwell Workhouse. His snuff-coloured coat with two brass buttons at the back was the solitary whole garment visible in this section of the congregation. It was his Sunday out, and having had his breakfast at the workhouse, he had, by way of distraction, come to spend the morning and eat his lunch at the Field Lane Institution. One man might be forgiven if he slept all through the sermon, for, as he explained, he had passed a very bad night. He had settled himself to sleep on various doorsteps, with the fog for a blanket and the railings for pillow. But there appeared what in his experience was a quite uncommon activity on the part of the police, and he had been moved on from place to place till morning broke, and he had not slept a wink or had half an hour's rest for the sole of his foot. There were not many of the labouring class among the couple of hundred men who made up this miserable company. They were chiefly broken-down people, who as tradesmen, clerks, or even professional men, had gradually sunk till they came to regard admission to the casual ward at night as the cherished hope that kept them up as they shuffled their way through the day. One man who over a marvellous costume of rags carried the mark of respectability comprehended in a thin black silk necktie tied around a collarless neck, is the son of a late colonel of artillery, and has a brother at the present time a lieutenant in one of Her Majesty's ships. After leading a reckless life, he turned his musical acquirements to account by joining the band of a marching regiment. Unfortunately, the death of his grandfather two years ago made him uncontrolled possessor of five hundred pounds, and now he is dodging his way among the casual wards of London, holding on to respectability and his good connections by this poor black silk necktie. Among the congregation was a bright-eyed, honest-looking lad, bearing the familiar name of John Smith. Three months ago he was earning his living in a Yorkshire coal-pit, when a strike among the men threw him out of work. There being no prospect of doing anything in Yorkshire, he set out for London, having, as he said, heard it was a great place, where work was plenty. With three shillings in his pocket he started from Leeds and walked to London, doing the journey in nine days. 
he had neither recommendation nor introduction other than his bright, honest, and intelligent face, and that seems to have served him only to the extent of getting an odd job that occupied him two days. The service opened with singing, of which there was a plentiful repetition, the boys and girls in the foreground singing, the melancholy throng behind standing dumb. Hymn-books were supplied to them, and if they could read, they might have found on the page from which the first hymn was taken, a hymn so curiously infelicitous to the occasion that it is worth quoting a couple of verses. These are the two first. Let us gather up the sunbeams lying all around our path. Let us keep the wheat and roses casting out the thorns and chaff. Let us find our sweetest comfort in the blessings of today, with a patient hand removing all the briars from the way. Strange we never prize the music till the sweet-voiced bird has flown. Strange that we should slight the violets till the lovely flowers are gone. Strange that summer skies and sunshine never seem one half so fair as when winter's snowy pinions shake the white down in the air. After the opening hymns, Sankey's sacred songbook, in which this rhymed nonsense appears, was abandoned, and the congregation took to the admirable little selection of hymns compiled for the use of the institution, containing much less sentiment, and perhaps on the whole more suitable. After prayer and a short address, the boys and girls filed out as they had come in. Then the rest of the congregation rose, and as they passed out, received a large piece of bread, supplemented by the distribution from a room on a lower story of a cup of hot cocoa. Stretching all down the long flight of stone steps, they drank their cocoa and greedily munched the bread, and when it was done, passed out into the Sabbath noon, to slouch about the great city till the doors of the casual wards were open. They had gathered up all the sunbeams lying around their path as far as the day had advanced, and there was no more for them till at eight o'clock in the evening the bread and tea should be set out before them under the workhouse roof. End of chapter 16 and end of Faces and Places by Henry W. Lucy